As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Joe Lowry, and today I'm joined by a man who knows a whole lot about the United States youth development landscape. It's Will Parchman. Will, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Absolutely. And I, I want to start off, how are you? It's been a crazy start to 2021 already, and last year we all know was insane. How are you doing? Well, you know, I guess that's a, that's a complicated question these days. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you, you, you try to you try to do all the right things and, you know, reach out to the right people. And, uh, you know, more more than ever, you know, having distractions is great, which is why I still love talking about the kids and the player kids movements and all that fun stuff. It gets your, your mind off of uh, everything else for a little bit. And that is exactly what we are here to do today. We're here to talk all about youth development in the United States. Later on in the show, we're going to chat about some specific academies here in the U.S., but before we get into those specific markets and, and what they're doing at different clubs in Major League Soccer specifically, I want to talk about American youth development in a more general, big picture kind of sense. We're starting to see more and more young, talented American players develop and, and develop here in the United States and then get sold or move on at least to European teams. In the last little bit, we've seen Brendan Aronson move. We've seen Mark McKenzie move. We've seen Reggie Cannon move. Joe Scally. Brian Reynolds is still, you know, a process, but there are a lot of players that have moved recently. Will, is this the start of something youth development wise here in the U.S.? Yeah, you know, we've gotten bitten before by saying, you know, X, Y, Z person. You know, I remember saying Matt Miazga was the, you know, the the flood that was going to break the dam. And, you know, I guess there's there's some you know truth to that back in whatever that was, 2014, 2015. It took a little bit more time. And so I think it, there's always a little bit more of a long game in this when you're talking about, you know, really a, a total, you know, sea change in the perception of American players. But, you know, it is turning and, and what has has turned in probably the last year or two, you know, helped a lot by Alfonso Davies transfer to Bayern and not just his transfer, but the fact that even though they paid the highest uh, price for a homegrown in history, I believe it was 25 million in, in that range. 
uh, or maybe, no, it was less than that, but it was, it was a lot of money. Um, and you know, even though they paid that much, it's actually looking like a bargain with how phenomenal he's been as a fullback that has begun to shift amongst the top champions league clubs. And obviously what we're seeing with Weston McKinney now at Juve, uh, you know, Christian Pulisic, when he's actually healthy at Chelsea, uh, some of these players actually producing on a big level, that's the change. And so we've always seen players. I mean, you think back to like Demarcus Beasley, and Claudio Reyna actually had really good tenures like at Rangers and Reyna at, you know, Manchester City before they had gotten bought out. There have been, and you know, Steve Cherundolo, I should say, at Hanover, you know, obviously he had a really good career there in the Bundesliga. A lot of players, but they were at that sort of sub-level uh, just below or even further below that Champions League level. And so what's changing now is these clubs that actually have a lot of this money to throw around. First of all, these players are bargains. I mean excuse me for being a little bit American biased here, but if some of these players were from Brazil and they had the same exact skill set, bet you anything their, you know, their transfer fee is significantly higher. And so I think that's just the perception that's beginning to shift among some of these top clubs that they're seeing. Oh, well, not only, I mean, this isn't a PR move. You know, I remember, you know, five, six, seven, eight years ago, you know, a player would get bought and it was like, Oh, well, the conversation was around we're changing perception because we get access to the American market. And, you know, when Byron opened up their office in New York City, it was like, well, we're, you know, we're it seemed like part of it, a big part of it was PR. Now that's shifting to where some of these big clubs are seeing the value actually on the field. And so that's changing. Again, it's it comes in fits and spurts. It'll start and it'll stop and we'll have, you know, gaps between some of those signings. But um, that was really the breakthrough that, you know, American soccer wanted to see. And again, you'll see it time and time again, you know, I, I know Gio Reyna has said, you know, Christian Pulisic paved the way in a lot of ways and somebody behind Gio will say Gio Reyna paved the way in a lot. So it's, it's a, a knock on effect. And I think that that you're starting to see some of these dominoes fall and will continue to fall. Um, as long as people like me don't get too hyperbolic about it and start spouting <laughs> that, American soccer has completely changed and, you know, we figured it all out, you know, as long as stuff like that, that doesn't, you know, it, it, it's a process, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's time to recognize that things are, are different than they were even three, four or five years ago. Because things are different. I think it's important for us to try to figure out why. And that's where I want to take us now. We're seeing more players move. We're seeing the perceptions of American players change from these larger difference making European clubs why is that happening? Or at least what are some of the factors behind that perception change and behind players moving abroad? Right. Well, without, you know, resting it too much on one person, I really do think Christian Pulisic will go down as a history making player in American soccer. And I think, you know, yes, he will continue to make an impact on the field. He will continue to be, you know, the number one goal scoring threat, if not, you know, assist threat, you know, in the, in the final third for the U S national team. But if you look at the risks that he took in, you know, leaving Pennsylvania and going to Dortmund and then his impact at Dortmund and his sale to Chelsea, that alone changed perception in a lot of corridors to say that, you know, uh, I mean, this is a complete generalization, but that Americans weren't able to go over to Europe. They weren't able to handle the rigors. And I mean, and this goes back to Landon Donovan, um, you know, flaming out in, in Germany, you know, which that got way overblown with, Oh, you know, he doesn't have the mental fortitude to make it Germany, blah, 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 blah. And all those things were, 
were necessarily false and blown out of proportion, but that sticks. And so when you have a player like Pulisic who goes to Dortmund at the age of 14 or 15, has the immediate impact that he does, rockets straight up the ladder and just explodes on the national scene and his valuation well surpassed any sort of American bias. Well, now clubs are going to start looking at that differently. And you do need that shift. I mean, I remember when Andriy Shevchenko exploded at Chelsea. I mean, as much of a you know crazy roundabout career as he had that he had, but when he exploded, that completely changed the perception of Ukrainian players in Europe. It just it just happens that way. And so I, I think without again, there are a number of factors at this. You know, MLS is improving the way it it reaches out to European clubs. It has reduced the opacity of its um, somewhat arcane salary structure system and transfer system. It's made it easier for European clubs to buy. All of that stuff is true. But at the end of the day, you know, Christian Pulisic is going to have a lot to say of the perception of American players to, in today's market. I mean, he would point to players that had success in Europe before him as paving the way for him in some degree, which is true. But in today's market, people look at Pulisic just like, you know, four or five years ago, we we're looking at Pulisic like we look at Reina now. And it's not crazy to think that Gio Reina would get sold on to a, a big club for 50 plus million because that's probably going to happen just the same way it will for other American players. So it all it all comes back to precedent and representation. And now that we have that in a way that we haven't really ever in American soccer history. The perception of American talent is changing. And I also think the production of American talent is changing and improving. And and I think a lot of that has to do with what was the development academy and now that's gone away and has been replaced by MLS Next. And we'll we'll get to that in just a second. But I want to stick to the development academy for a second. It was disbanded in April 2020 and has been replaced with that new MLS controlled youth development structure. And so before we get into the differences between the DA and MLS Next, I want you to explain to me and to listeners out there, what the DA was, what it was created to do, and, and why it's gone now. Yeah, so the DA was was created in, in 2007. It was organized under the auspices of, of U.S. soccer, the, the federation itself. And, you know, it really, it, it's easy to look at the shortcomings of it now and forget the absolute zombie wasteland that American soccer development was in 2007 when it started. I mean, you're talking about you know, Olympic ODP camps that had been organized 30 years earlier when U.S. soccer was even more of a wasteland that were continuing to be like a primary uh, avenue for players to get noticed. And when the DA started, you know, it really was trying to hew more closely to a European model where, you know, you have 80 or so clubs nationwide that are organized into, you know, kind of an American conference system and they would travel to play each other in sort of what they would consider an elite of the elite system. Uh, you weren't allowed to play high school soccer, which is a sticking point for some people. Um, but they argued, you know, that's only going to hold you back. You need to, you know, dedicate your life to this, not anything else. Um, you know, it was obviously insular that way. The problems that they ran into was really the, the, you know, of their own making because the DA was was very small. Um, there wasn't very meaningful games. I mean, We'll talk about this in a minute, I'm sure. But with MLS Next, the idea was to break off and create, you know, a more hyper local approach, create a little bit more competition, more games, all those things. But the DA, um, you know, for all of its faults, really, its its purpose was to create this sort of hyper competitive environment to raise kids 
in a quote-unquote professional academy environment that gave them the opportunity to develop um, in line with with you know more players. More. And look, I mean, it, it disbanded, so ultimately, you know, we have to call it at least somewhat a failure. But you know, it did produce. Um, you know, I, I guess produce is a is a loose term, but you know the the environment that you know got Polisic noticed. I mean, the reason Christian Polisic was even noticed by you know BVB was because they saw him, they scouted him at a uh, a DA event, at a showcase event in uh, Bradenton, Florida. Um, and so, yes, it was imperfect. Yes, um, you know, it's it's time had probably run its course. Um, yes, U.S. Soccer Federation probably bit off more than it can chew, and it kind of you know it fell into some disrepair late in late in its life. But um, it did serve a purpose, and it did help some players, you know, advance. You hinted at it a minute ago, and I want you to expand on it here if you can. What are some of the differences between the DA you mentioned size, but between the DA and MLS Next? Yeah, so really the biggest difference um, is in organization. I mean, if you look at um, if you look at the list of the teams involved, I mean, it's really not that different. There are a lot of you know, it's not just MLS teams. I mean, obviously they invited some uh, former DA players. They invited or former DA teams and invited some new teams. Um, and so organizationally, you know, it's it's a it's a different version of the same thing. What's changed is the oversight. And so U.S. Soccer Federation no longer has sort of, quote unquote, control over the event schedule, you know, when teams play, the, the types of teams they play, the, um, you know, you hear a lot from, from DA heads, from uh, academy heads about um, these invitationals. So getting like PSG, you know, I, I know the Barca Residency Academy in Arizona, which I know we'll talk about a little bit has done a phenomenal job of this in scheduling these international events. And, you know, when you have Barca's name behind you, um, it does help. But they've played some incredible competition in some of these invitational tournaments. And I think that's what MLS in part wanted to do is to create an environment where they could control the schedule and the amount of games so that kids get more games and harder games. Because those are really the two things that held the DA back. The competition was not great. I mean, if you look at some of like, for instance, LA Galaxy's um, results in a random given year. I mean, SoCal is supposedly one of the, the biggest hotbeds, um, you know, in the country for talent. And, you know, Galaxy were running teams out, of, you know, the proverbial gym, like eight, 10, nothing. And so that's not helping anyone. Nobody gets better when that happens. And so finding better competition, I mean, I think that's really um, the goal that MLS, MLS Next has, and it's a it's a viable goal. I mean, if if they can accomplish that and create an environment where, um, you know, travel is what it is in this country. I mean, you're you're always going to run into that to some degree, but where the a the competition gets gets harder and you play more close games that challenge you, and b that you have more games on the schedule because really they weren't playing enough. It was spotty. It was occasional. It was um, subject to change. So those two things, I think, are what MLS Next aims to provide. Whether they can do it or not, we'll see. But MLS is certainly bringing at least some ambition to the table. And from what you know or from what you've heard, how do clubs feel about the changing of the guard from the DA to MLS Next and, and from U.S. soccer controlling youth development to Major League Soccer controlling it? I would say it's a split between cautiously optimistic and just like institutionally cynical. <laughs> I mean, some people w would tell you, you know, U.S. Soccer Federation's time had run its course. This is, 
you know, they had sort of been tapped out. They seemed disinterested in their final years. I mean, USSF has its own problems to deal with internally that they've been, um, you know, cycling through a lot of employees the last couple of years. You know, the DA has, has, you know, had a rotating cast of, of leadership. And so, you know, whether it was up to their capacity in these times to, to lead that, um, lead that charge is up for debate. And so I think the people that are cautiously optimistic are just optimistic generally about, oh, we've got a new chance, new money, you know, new opportunities um, to to succeed. I think just the institutionally cynical people would tell you, well, it's just another, you know, a, a, another overlord, so to speak, in the in sort of the same same old, same old. And so, you know, I, I'm kind of lean a little bit more towards the cautiously optimistic. I think MLS has the opportunity um, they certainly have the infrastructure um, in place to start building something that USSF seemed a little bit unwilling to do, which is building sort of a, a staff infrastructure that really supported the people who are already there. Um, now, given it's COVID and, you know, hiring is difficult for everyone. And so you understand that it may be a little bit delayed in getting off the ground. But, you know, I think um, MLS certainly has financial um financial incentive to make it a good league right that ussf did not have because the more you know mls produces good players which means that they're going to have to have those players play teams outside of mls because you can't build a successful league just off of you know 20 something really good academies you need more and so they have financial incentive to make this league good because that means their academy players are better that means they become better professionals and that means that they make buku bucks selling these players on um which thankfully more mls clubs seem willing to do now than they did you know even four or five six years ago you mentioned a full-time staff there i assume with major league soccer is what you're talking about getting employees brought on full-time to oversee and help work with the the mls next landscape how do how do people in those roles help the academy set up in the academy system in the united states well i'll tell you that club directors and coaches really do not have the time to do things organizationally outside their immediate sphere of influence. Believe it or not, a lot of coaches, especially at the younger ages, do this on a part-time basis, um, even in the MLS level. You know, obviously at the club director level, you know, academy director, you know, even some admin positions, you're talking full-time positions, but um, it's just a reality that, you know, club coaches will split time between various clubs, um, because clubs are still posting part-time jobs. And so, you know, these coaches are, um, they don't, they frankly just don't have the time to, to organize it beyond that. So that's really the value of a really strongly staffed front office, whether we're talking MLS, uh, French Federation or, or what have you, is that they have enough time to, um, again, it's contacts, build out contacts. Do they have enough time to reach out to, you know, other leagues and bring, you know, high quality academy clubs here to play invitationals and showcases and things like that? I mean, those you need as many of those as you possibly can. And it's, you know, it's incumbent upon the league or the official organizing body to do that. And so you need the coaches focusing on coaching. You need the academy directors focusing on their academies and you need the overarching you know structure focused on supporting those and you know frankly i think a lot of directors would tell you that they did not get enough support from u.s soccer especially in the final years and so again this comes in with that are you cynical or optimistic 
um, and believe that MLS can do what U.S. soccer could not. And, you know, the jury certainly has a very new, uh, very new approach. Um, I will say if they if they do it over time, they would be the first. So, um, you know, some of that cynicism is not unwarranted. One thing that kind of puzzles me about how Major League Soccer invests in youth development, if I if I want to use the word invest, is they require all of their clubs, all of their teams and franchises to operate youth academies. And on the surface, that seems like a, a really good thing. The more people, the more teams you have developing players, the better off you're going to be, right? The more shots you get at the dartboard, the more likely at least I am to hit the actual dartboard. But I, I think it's only a good thing if every MLS team actually wants to invest in their academy setup. And judging by the lack of quality young players that a lot of MLS academies are producing right now, not every team actually wants to be investing in their academy. They don't want necessarily to be forced by Major League Soccer to do so. So my question for you, Will, is why does MLS force these teams to have academies? Why don't they give their clubs more flexibility and let the ones that want to operate academies do that and let the ones that want to spend money on other things go out and spend money on other things? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think, I think initially MLS was operating out of good faith that, you know, they were being sort of the benevolent dad and saying, you know, I know you don't want to eat your peas, but it's good for you. And it'll, That's great. you know, make, it'll make you strong and in, in time. And, you know, this will be, you'll come around to it. Like you'll see the value of it when, once you start producing good players. But what that discounts is that, you know, you can't pick up the spoon for the, for your kid, you know, MLS cannot pick up the spoon for, for, for its own teams. It cannot force these teams um, on a day-to-day basis to run their academies well. It just forces them to keep the lights on. And what we've seen over time is not only does that hurt the clubs, um, as much as I think that they should be publicly shamed and wear a scarlet letter for, for failing to do this, at the end of the day, it hurts the, the players and the families. And, you know, nowhere is this more obvious than in what Minnesota United has pulled over the last several years in you know basically pulling the rug out from under all of its players last summer by firing um all but one of its academy staffing it's five five um people and they fired four of them and furloughed the other one and then fired him three months later and so the fact that they and then they completely changed tack and decided oh we're actually not going to have a we're going to have an affiliate system it's a ridiculous thing where we bring in players from other clubs and they're going to wear their like actual like home club patch on a Minnesota United Jersey while they're at our events. And it's just, it's just nonsense. And the problem is that, you know, MLS is sanctioning that, that this is allowed because Minnesota United is unwilling to spend the money or whatever it is. I don't know what the blockage is, but they're just unwilling to do that. And so the problem is that they're now in this half distance and MLS is just kind of in the middle, like, well, you know, we told them we had they had to have one and they technically do have one, even though it's kind of a shadow system. And so, you know, I think in practice, it's it's a little bit less practical unless you have like it would work if they had if MLS provided some sort of like liaison or some sort of full time professional staffer to say, OK, well, you have to have an academy. Um, you know, I understand, you know, they they get a certain amount of money, but like, here's a staffer to help, you know, to help you get it on board. Here's someone who's been trained and versed from the front office to say, okay, here's, here's how you do some of these things that we're forcing you to do. Because some, some clubs are clearly unable or just unwilling to do that. 
Um, and so I think that is part of the problem. Um, you know, you do see clubs occasionally like the Chicago fire, um, have been really, really bad in the past, but they get, you know, like a Rafa wiki who comes in with a little bit of pedigree and and coaching young players. And, you know, he's, I wouldn't say he's turned them around, but you know, they're certainly better than they were a year or two ago. Um, or, you know, there are instances like that where you can kind of see, okay, well maybe if we just give them more time, they'll figure it out. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I think they're also scared about, well, if, if we tell these clubs that they don't have to run academies, will how many are going to opt out? You know, are we going to just be decimated? And that's a terrible, that's a terrible look if they take the, you know, the proverbial shackles off and say, well, you just do what you want. And, you know, let's three fourths of the, the league say, well, it's not practicable for us to fund this. So we're going to eliminate it. And then you've got like seven or eight clubs that are actually funding academies. Well, that's, that's terrible as well. So, I understand the bind that they're in. I just think, um, you know, the optics and certainly the the result of, you know, having that in place leads to some really bizarre, um, you know, results that really at the end of the day are a disservice to the players. And that's really what it should boil down to is that the parents and the players are kind of being left out in the cold. So I, I can see their bind, but yeah, it does lead to some sticky situations. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. If Major League Soccer does stop feeding their clubs peas, how many of the clubs in Major League Soccer do you think would actually stop running an academy once Major League Soccer said it was okay to stop? Oh, you're asking the tough questions today. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't put a number on it, but percentage-wise, certainly you would get ten percent. I would say without question, you would get at least ten percent of MLS clubs like tomorrow would say i mean and that's just me basing it off of their actions off of just seeming to not care whether they sign players or not and part of that is on first team signing policy it just they they're perfectly fine to sign young players from abroad um you know and ignore their academies which you know that's certainly a way to go about building a club the problem is that you have an academy that's presuming presumably you know, whether through verbal or just action, uh, communicating the kids that, you know, we're going to get you potentially have a shot to play here. When in reality, if you look at the stats, um, that's not at all the case. So I hope it wouldn't be more than 10 percent. But, I, you know, I wouldn't be shocked. Where does USL fit into all of this? We've talked a lot about Major League Soccer, and we're going to do that more in a minute or so. But with USL expanding and more and more markets coming into the championship and into League One, how do they fit into the ever-developing U.S. youth development landscape? You know, I, I think what you're going to continue to see is that non-MLS USL clubs will take continue to take it 
the, just the organization a lot more seriously than MLS USL clubs. And the reason for that is I've, you know, I've talked to administrators before, you know, in MLS who've told me they basically view their MLS USL clubs as, you know, holding pens, so to speak, for their players. They don't feel like their players get much better in USL. They just use it as a place for them to get reps and keep warm, essentially, until they can move them up to MLS. Um, you know, I don't know that that's the case. I just know that that's how a lot of MLS um, administrators look at it. Um, whereas the non-MLS clubs, I mean, this is what this is their club. I mean, you look at like Forward Madison um, up in Wisconsin is doing a phenomenal job just in every avenue, you know, as far as, um, you know, promoting the club and, you know, the merch game and, you know, really trying hard to scour and scout. And, you know, that's not something that MLS clubs are doing. They're using it as a way station for players from their academy they're not they're they're not looking to sign players and, and sign them to their usl teams in other words if they sign a player you know they're looking for that player to be a first team player and so it's a they're different approaches which is why you've heard about mls clubs breaking off and um doing their own kind of reserve league which is certainly possible but you know at the end of the day it's two different approaches in the same league which i think over time you'll see is untenable and they just can't exist together We've done some big picture stuff. Now I want us to transition into talking about specific academies. And I want to highlight some specific ones because I think there are academies out there that are doing some really interesting and positive work. And so the basic question that I am hopeful that we're going to be able to answer for each academy is why is fill in the blank academy effective at producing American soccer talent? Because really that's the question, right? You know, you and I and whoever else out there as stakeholders in American soccer, we want to see academies developing and producing talented American professional soccer players. And so looking at why a certain academy is or is not effective at producing those types of players, I think that's important. I want us to start with the Philadelphia Union. They recently sold Brendan Aronson to RB Salzburg for $6 million. And even more recently, they've sold Mark McKenzie to Genk in Belgium for $6 million. Will, what makes the Union's academy special? Yeah, the union are a really important one um, to look at because it wasn't so long ago that they were viewed um, as a, a somewhat of a disappointment. I mean, I think, you know, they, their initial um, approach to the academy was actually what Minnesota United is now doing with this sort of quasi affiliate situation. And it failed for them, which makes you wonder, if, you know, how in tune with MLS's academy history Minnesota United is because they can see. You know, the Philadelphia, you know, that corridor, that area is a much better soccer market. And, and it it did not work for the union to do that. And so they really shifted. You know, they, they opened this YSC Academy, which, um, you know, basically turned them into a, a residency, so to speak. I mean, it was still, it, you know, it was still pricey, but, you know, they, they have scholarships and, and would bring kids in for free where they could. And it's really turned into, you know, that that sort of residency model has turned into for them what has become just a phenomenal pipeline. And so I think, you know, what the union proved is that the closer you hold your hand to the fire for longer, the hotter your hand is going to be. And I know that sounds, that might sound super self-evident, but what that means in a soccer sense is the closer that they hold their players to, you know, a situation where those players are, you know, close to development, they're close to the field, they're close to, um, you know, they're close to the classroom where they're, they're learning instruction. The, the more time you can spend putting kids in to that environment and keeping them there longer. I mean, that's what Europe does. Um, 
the the better players, well-rounded players, the better thinkers on the field they're going to be. And so that's really what the union were committed to. And they've been doing this for a, a number of years now, for six, seven years. And you're now seeing, I mean, and again, this this goes back to time and, you know, being patient to a degree. You're now seeing that come to fruition. And it's been since 2013 that they, they've started that initiative. So, you know, you've got to have a little bit of patience and remember we're still kind of babies on the on the, the academy scene in, in a lot of ways compared to the rest of the world. So that to me is the overarching thing. And, and you know, that's not just the union. You know, you go north of the border, Vancouver has a phenomenal residency. In my opinion, they have the, the best and longest uh, serving residency academy in the, in the whole of MLS, you know, just as far as bringing in kids from the surrounding area, setting them up in homes with families. I mean, it's exactly what happened with Alfonso Davies, who spent, you know, relatively little time with the Whitecaps in comparison to the team, I believe, in Edmonton, um, where where he was before. But that, that system allowed him to flourish in Vancouver and ultimately get first team minutes, play in the USL, and then get sold on. So that's exactly what's happening in Philadelphia. And it's exactly what, you know, happened in RSL when they were at Grande in Arizona, and it's the system that they ported um, now north back home uh, in Sandy. And so all of these things, you know, th- there's a lot of different you know moving pieces. Obviously, their their academy staff has been really good. They're really invested. You see players, you know, go there from other academies because they want to be part of it. And so, you know, there's a big ecosystem involved. But at the end of the day, it's just as simple as being around the game as much as humanly possible. And the union do a great job of that. You mentioned YSC there, and you mentioned the Vancouver Whitecaps and RSL as well. How rare are residency models among American and, I guess, Canadian academies? Phenomenally rare. They, they're they generally, um, if they exist, they're generally creations of the last couple years. Um, they re- it's just really not what we've done. And, you know, funding is the reason. Residencies are expensive. And if you, you know, I went to... Um, to Germany a couple years ago to visit Bayer Leverkusen and, and did a story on them. And, you know, they opera obviously operate an academy system and it is funded by champions league money. You know, they rely on playing in the Europa league and champions league to push that money down so that they can fund it. Well, where, you know, where the heck is that money coming from in the States? You know, the CCL is not, pay, not paying out enough to, to give you, you know, a, a functioning residency. So, you know, that's been the, the issue and it continues to be the issue. It's the if you ask any academy director, the number one reason they don't do X, Y or Z is because of funding. I mean, they just don't, especially now, it's just hard to come by. So, um, you know, kudos to the clubs that have had investment and just willing to lose money, because frankly, unless you're selling players at a decent clip, which we're finally seeing, um, those are money losing endeavors. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, is Paxton Aronson, going back to the union, going to follow in Brendan's footsteps? I've heard some good things. What have you heard about Paxton Aronson? Yeah, you know, it's funny. You get the second, say second generation, you know, that the, the, the sibling um, and opinions tend to be, you know, go wildly in wildly different directions. You know, oh, well, you know, he's got more pressure because he's his brother. Um, you know, I've heard mixed things. I've heard some people say he's better. I've heard some people say, um, you know, not quite as good. So, you know, I will reserve my opinions for the, uh, the, uh, you know, the people that see him every day, but certainly I've heard it's possible he could be, you know, a bigger deal. 
Well played. Well played, sir. Very, uh, very political with that response. Very, very well said. <laughs> Looking now at the middle strip of the country with FC Dallas in Texas, where you are, not necessarily in Dallas, but in Texas, you get the idea. Dallas have signed 29 homegrown players in the club, in their club history, which is more than any other team in Major League Soccer. They've sold Chris Richards and Reggie Cannon. Brian Reynolds looks like he's going to join those two guys in Europe very soon. How does Dallas do it? How have they been so effective at producing talented players over the last three, four, five years now? I will point to um, a hire that may not seem significant in and of itself, but that really embodies um, kind of the answer to the question, and, and that's Lucci Gonzalez. And, you know, I think Lucci is FC Dallas to his core, obviously, was, you know, has been in the academy, he was an academy coach at FCD for a long time. Um, the fact that he, it was such a no brainer that he was going to be hired um, after, after Oscar Perea left um, as the first team coach, to me, kind of embodies the way FC Dallas thinks. They don't think like a first team club that has an academy, they think like an academy that also has a first team club if that makes sense. That doesn't mean that they're not out there scouting. That doesn't mean that they don't have a GM, that they're not um, making shrewd signings. Because we've seen in the past, um, Ferreira, Barrios, I mean, they, they've made good international calls. Um, but the way that they think and the way that their actions um, dictate is that we are going to produce players and we're going to play them on the first team and we're going to sell them. Um, that's And the, what's different is that that ethos has been in place for longer um, than just about any club in MLS. It just takes time. I mean, if you focus on something and you do it for long enough, you're you're going to see some success. And I feel like that's what MLS clubs maybe don't understand is they're like, oh, you know, we'll dabble in the academy. You know, we'll we'll hopefully, you know, we'll throw some money at it. We'll hire some good people. You know, we'll send some some of our players up to first team training every now and then. And, you know, hopefully it works out. Well, I mean, that's not that's not going to produce an academy to the level of FC Dallas. You've got to do what FCD does, which is they pull their academies up and train them next to their first, like literally on, on the next field over all the time. Um, they share, you know, spaces, they share meals, they, you know, they, they're in each other's spaces. And so if you don't create that awareness of as an academy player here, that's your goal. We're going to do everything we can to put you there. I mean, I know that sounds simplistic to say it's a mindset because you do need more. I mean, you've got to have at least some investment. You've got to have coaches. You know, you've got to have the right um, infrastructure and all these things. But at the end of the day, it's not this is not complicated. I think clubs just make it to be seem more, more difficult than it is. It's just a mindset. And FC Dallas, you know, they partner with the community. They do all kinds of like sub U12 uh, programming to kind of identify players before they, you know, we, we could get into a million things that they do that are successful, but, um, you know, they're recruiting, you know, they bring in kids, you know, Christian Cappies from Houston, for instance, was one that they actually took, um, out from under the dynamo's noses, you know, it was in Houston and, um, he decided to go to FC Dallas cause he recognized, you know, the, the promise of playing there. So anyway, there, there's a lot of things, but at the end of the day, it, it, like we said, with the hand next to the fire, I mean, they just keep their kids in, in soccer mode all the time. And I think that you just, you see the benefit of that. What's next for Dallas. I think we can say objectively that they've done some really good youth development things over the last few years with Luigi Gonzalez and with some of the other moves that they've made from a development standpoint, but what needs to happen for them to continue to grow as an Academy and to avoid becoming stagnant? 
Yeah, I think I think number one is you you got to spend more first team cash, and and the reason I say that from an academy standpoint is these players need when they step into first team training, they need to feel like oh man, I am out of my depth because that's the way it is. I mean, I remember you know when I was uh, covering when I was working for the the Sounders, and you know I was there when Dempsey came, and he did not care how old you were in training. He was going to put you on your back. Uh, he's going to embarrass you if he could, um, because he knew like, that's how you get better is, you know, you, you play someone who's a lot better than you and you see your faults and you work like heck to beat him next time. And, you know, that's the way it is in, in every major club. You should be overawed when you go to first team training, you no Academy player, um, necessarily should walk into a first team training and think like I'm bossing this. Cause that's not, that's not an environment that's going to make you better. And so, FC Dallas, I think their next step is to bring in players, first team players. And that's not to say their first team is not better than the academy. I mean, it certainly it is. But um, to the level to where these kids walk into first team, you know, and they're playing, you know, names they might actually recognize um, internationally. You know, that's something that FC Dallas has really never focused on. And so if you can at least do that with one or two players per roster, I mean, now you're looking at a first team that some of these academy kids are maybe they're idolizing a player, you know, somebody that you really splashed on. So that's going to take a real change in mindset in the front office. And they would have to do it without losing focus on some of these players. But I think there is some value to having that kind of big name player that can kind of make your academy kids go, okay, well, that's, that's the level. Like, that's where I want to be. I want to be at that like top tier level. And if they see that in person, it's even more simple to imagine themselves getting there. One thing that I forget when I'm talking about youth development or thinking about youth development is that academies are expensive and residency academies are really, really expensive. Are there any teams in MLS, teams like Dallas and Philadelphia, that are turning a profit with their academies? Because that's the goal, right? It has to be the goal for any team. And I'm wondering, are there teams out there that are already making a profit or that are at least close? You know... That is a it's a great question because you know MLS is a single entity, right? I mean, they are MLS owns the pocketbooks of every individual team, and so when you're talking about reporting on individual figures, um, you know, there's a there's some gray area there where clubs don't necessarily feel comfortable sharing those figures because they're not technically their figures; they're the league's figures. It's the same thing with the salaries. Um, and so I think there's a lot of, you know, unknowns when it comes to, you know, how much are clubs actually making or losing on a yearly basis? I mean, there's been, you know, I know Grant Walls has put out some, um, some general figures in the past, um, in his, I, I think he's done some rankings before, um, you know, you'll hear a number thrown out for a particular club every now and then, but those are not like public numbers or even, you know, numbers that reporters have been able to get reliably from clubs. And so that's part of the problem is that we really don't know how valuable or invaluable these academies are. I mean, Merritt Paulson in Portland has said, you know, he has no problem talking and has said repeatedly, you know, our, our academy loses us money, but we're so committed to it that we're going to continue. And it, it, to me, that just, you know, it given how bad Portland's Academy is, it's just kind of funny in a different way. But, um, you know, I, I think that that's a big blind spot in American soccer too, because we don't know 
where we are. I don't think there's any way to get better. And I don't even know if the clubs in between themselves share those numbers. I'm sure some of them do. But but yeah, I, I would be interested in knowing that and knowing that as well. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We've gotten to two more more well-established academies already. The next one I want to pick your brain about is not established. It's significantly newer. It's LAFC's academy that launched in 2016. So I guess this is more of a speculative discussion than anything else. LAFC took a unique approach to building their academy, and I'm curious about your thoughts on it, and I'm wondering if you can detail what that approach was back in 2016. Yeah, so they really, you know, took a community approach. you know, from the start. And I think I've, I've been really impressed with, with the way that they rolled it out because they didn't, you know, there's a balance to strike. You know, a lot of times you'll see clubs go go really fast and roll out every team at first, you know, U15, U18 or U19s, you know, U13, you know, they'll, they'll just sort of bum rush it. And, you know, there's, there is such a thing as going too fast or you'll have clubs, you know, really slow play it and take years to get these teams in the ground and think, oh, well, we've got to do our due diligence. I think what LAFC did was they struck a really good balance between, you know, not going too fast and not going too slow. And so they've sort of marched up. They've built infrastructure year over year, a really good scouting apparatus. And really, they've just done what the market has allowed them to do, which is, you know, take really good players. They found really good players. You know, LAFC is a brand that people want to be a part of um, for a multitude of reasons. So it's not been super difficult for them to recruit. Um, and then they've, you know, they've said all the right things. And so, you know, bringing on Bob Bradley, whether the kids know it or not, I mean, that was a really big signal. I mean, you talk about, you know, you talk about a coach that, you know, has been in, in Europe, uh, done a number of different things. U.S. national team has been around MLS, you know, and and really, and again, again kids don't know this necessarily, but, you know, he's a guy who gave Eddie Gavin, you know, 700 minutes his rookie year with the Metro Stars in 2003. He's kickstarted DeMarcus Beasley's career, gave him 1,100 minutes as his, his rookie year in 2000 in Chicago. So, you know, and, and you look at his national team career, he's, he's not shy about playing kids. And so these are all things that LAFC can use to say, hey, um, we're not just throwing, you know, this is not a token approach at an academy this is something that we're serious about and they've communicated that all along the way you know they've had some hiccups and some uh, maybe some things that they'd like do-overs on but at the end of the day you look at the talent um you know christian torres getting his his start you know first homegrown to to play a game um you know i think last august and so the amount of talent they have in their pipeline is is staggering i mean they have an unbelievably stocked i mean you look at youth national team camps there's almost always an lafc player somewhere in the mix. And so, um, you know, really can't say enough about them. And with 
you know, Bradley at the helm, they're going to get shots. Um, you know, we'll see what they do with it, but I think there's a lot to be excited about. And from, you know, the galaxy's perspective, they'll continue to do what they do, but it's not, you know, a one horse race anymore. They've got to really worry about what is LAFC doing. And they're going to have some, frankly, some tug of wars over players like Efren Alvarez, um, that they didn't have to have before. Staying in the Southwest, but looking at a non-MLS academy, I want to talk Barca Residency Academy with Matthew Hoppy, a former Barca Residency Academy player, scoring a hat trick for Schalke over the weekend. Julian Araujo has spent time at Barca before moving to the Galaxy. Caden Clark was at Barca before moving to the New York Red Bulls. And again, when I say Barca, I'm not talking about La Liga's Barcelona. I'm talking about this academy in Casa Grande, Arizona. Will, is the Barca Residency Academy the best non-MLS academy in terms of its ability to produce professional players? The answer is a tentative yes for right now. Um, but but let, me, let me backtrack a little bit. The reason, like, I, I'll be honest. I had some issues with Barca initially. I, I, in fact, I hated the idea of it. And not because of anything that they had done or anybody that they hired. I just hate the pay for pay for play model and Barca Academy is expensive. Um, and so I looked at it initially and I thought, Oh, well, here we go. You know, here's another cash grab, another chance for, you know, a, a for, and especially that it was, you know, a foreign Academy that they had all the ability in the world to just, you know, turn a blind eye to and let people here run it however they wanted to run it. And I say that with previous experience with, you know, other, European clubs doing the same thing and really doing a poor job of it and leaving a lot of kids out in the cold, which is a, you know, a subject for a whole different day. But when, when it started, I was extremely skeptical verging on, you know, why are they even doing this? The, the reality is what, what they've done is hired some very smart people. They, they slid in, um, when RSL left Arizona, the Grande Academy for, you know, they had, a really nice, um, really nice setup now and, you know, closer to home and, uh, in the Salt Lake area, um, Arizona slid in right behind them and occupied the space and said, we're going to move in and, um, and do our thing here. And, you know, it's been really impressive, their recruiting efforts. So basically what they do, um, and you know, it's, it's, it's economics, like we're saying, you know, it's hard to find money is that they, it's a, it's a pricey residency for, um, you know, whatever the percentage is, 95% of the kids there are gunning for a college scholarship. And if it pays for college, then it's paid for itself, you know? Um, and the, what they do is then they then subsidize, use that to subsidize the cost for the small percentage of kids they bring in that, you know, can be potential professionals. We're talking about the hoppies and the Clarks and all these things. And so, um, it, that's just the reality of, you know, a non, especially a non MLS development, um, residency in America today. I mean, that's just how you have to run it because nobody's giving you money to do this. Like you've got to create it yourself. And so they've got kids that can afford to pay, you know, the, the cost to, to do this kind of school slash soccer thing. And they use that to subsidize kids who maybe couldn't do it and have the talent to potentially be pros. And so, um, in that way, I guess you could say it's a win-win. Um, obviously it is a gate. It is another gate up that, um, you know, kids can't just join, but at the end of the day, you know, that's not a realistic way to view it. You've got to 
generate revenue in order to keep this thing going. And they, they've, you know, from everything I've heard, they've done things extremely above board and they've been smart about it and they've got great coaching. And as you can see, I mean, it's not every day that, you know, a kid comes through your halls and then, you know, not too long after scores a hat trick in the Bundesliga. So, um, you know, clearly they're doing things right. So I, again, all that to say, I had my reservations at first. I, you know, I recognize, I wish everything could be free for everybody. It's not, but they're doing a great job and I think they deserve some kudos. Even with some interesting uh, interesting structures with some of these academies, we've hit on a few of them that are doing really positive and, and some creative things in the youth development sphere. But there are also some academies that aren't making the waves that it feels like they should be making. And when I'm talking about those academies, I want to start with the two New York teams, the Red Bulls and NYCFC. There's so much talent in the New York City, New Jersey area and both the Red Bulls and NYCFC have tapped into that talent in the past. I'm thinking about Tyler Adams and James Sands. And it is possible that I'm being a little bit impatient with NYCFC. But after Adams and Sands and a fewer lower level guys, where is the rest of the top end talent from New York? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a good question. I think, you know, the Red Bulls do have some solid talent coming up. I mean, it's, they're certainly not. I mean, you would certainly still consider them, you know, a top ish um, top five, maybe, um, if we're being generous Academy, I mean, they've, um, you know, been signing players maybe a little bit slower. What, what I don't think people know, I don't know if many people know is that they, the Red Bulls basically spent three years without, you know, a formal head of their, of their Academy system. I mean, they, they hired Sean McCafferty in 2019, but until that, um, you know, they had, hadn't had like a permanent, hired for the position ahead since 2016 and so i wonder what effect that that has had on um you know their the whole system um it, it may be slight i don't know i'm not i'm not there every day but um you can't deny that that had to have had some effect and the knock-on effect would be coming to bear um now because that's that's a big job if you're coming in at a you know that's a relatively uh, well thought of academy and to try to basically overturn whatever they had been doing or build on whatever they've been doing the last three years without a, a director. So that's, that's, you know, one thing to to keep in mind, but yeah, you know, it, it comes in, in fits and spurts. Um, and so, you know, if the Red Bulls, you know, end up producing a pro player who gets sold on from their, their system in the next year, I don't think we're having this conversation necessarily. I think there's enough talent there. Um, and it's, it's possible that they can do that. I don't know if they, they don't have a necessarily have a Tyler Adams level player, but you know, it's, it's definitely possible the talent they have. And then NYCFC, I think, um, you know, again, relatively new ish club. Um, and, and so I think it's just going to be time for them. They do have some talented players that they brought up. I mean, they've, they've got a development Academy title under their belt. Um, I believe at the, the U19 level. Um, and so, you know, yes, the titles are far less important than producing players, but they've got talent as well. So I think I'm not super worried about New York. I think they've got players there. I think it's just it's sometimes it's just institutional and sometimes it's just uh, you miss. So I think that's that has as much to do with anything. The other two more big market academies that I want to ask you about, and then if you have any that you want to sort of rant about, you're more than welcome to do so. The other two are Chicago and Houston. Those two clubs are in these big areas with a lot of talent and a lot of interest in playing soccer in those cities. 
And they've both brought in former U.S. Youth National Team head coaches, Chicago with Rafael Vicky, and then also George Heights as well, coming in as the sporting director in Chicago, and Houston bringing in Tab Ramos before last season to be manager of their first team. With those two managerial signings specifically, are you expecting that Chicago and Houston are going to start to produce more homegrown talent? Yeah, you know, if, if this was if it was three years ago and a player in Chicago or a player in Houston was considering going to either of those respective academies, I would tell their parents to run for the hills and find uh, find another like Houston Texans or um, you know find another club in Chicago um, because it's just not a good situation. I think it's changed a little bit. Um, the fire are not as much of a tire fire, uh, no pun intended. Um, as they were before, you know, their, their present, um, folks in there. I, I don't know how much better they are, but certainly they've, you know, they've got some players in, um, now that are quality. Um, and so I think Houston is, is in a much better position. I think, you know, with Paul Holliker and, um, Tab Ramos, uh, down there in Houston, I think, you know, you, you just need to follow Paul's Twitter to kind of see the passion that he has and some of the things that they're instilling down there. The problem in Chicago and Houston is they are trying to overcome years of institutional rot when it comes to the academies. Um, They're having to overcome, I mean, people don't think about this, but these academies have, um, they have reputations in these communities and families talk. And so parents will follow whatever they feel is the best choice for their kids. And if people are telling them, look, they're not going to sign for MLS. If they play for XYZ club, if they play for the Dynamo, the Dynamo don't care about their academy. So, and they'll go somewhere else because they know their kid um, can get a better experience somewhere else. And so they need to in, you know, overturn those, those conversations that are ha- happening, you know, so to speak, behind their back. And I think they can do that, especially in Houston. I think you know, Ramos obviously is a strong, you know, as strong of a youth background as anyone in America um, as far as development is concerned. And so, you know, he can certainly talk the talk. And, uh, you know, I think with some of the players they have down there as well, that's, that's the case. But, um, I think the problem isn't necessarily who they have now. It's, it's the, the systems that they're trying to change. There's just a lot of inertia that they, they're going to have to have to, to fix it. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, <laughs> ranting on maybe one more, but, you know, I think, yeah, I, I still cannot figure out what the Timbers are doing. I, I cannot figure. I mean, it seems like they've cycled through a number of different academy heads, academy heads, um, and they just cannot get get it figured out. I mean, look no further than Marco Farfan. You know, he was one of their only academy. You know, I, maybe three or four homegrowns they've signed, maybe five. Um, you know, and he's one of the few. And you know, he first three seasons in the league fewer than a thousand total minutes and, you know, throw him into the mixer in 2020 and he looks out of sorts and he, you know, he gets traded this off season. Well, if I'm a homegrown and I'm like, well, I'm not really going to even be given a chance. And, you know, after a couple of years, you're going to throw me in cold and, you know, I, yeah, I, I may not look good, but like you could have done this three or four years ago and, you know, gotten me out of the way just to see if I was good enough. And it, they're in this weird position where it's like, do they give, you know, it, as, as a, a homegrown, like, do you go play for the Timbers or, you know, do you try your hand somewhere else? And, you know, if you do play for the Timbers, do you feel like you have an adequate chance to make the first team because they really haven't shown the ability to, you know, give 
give their kids a chance. And so, you know, they have a lot of issues in Portland as far as, you know, figuring out, do we really want to put time and effort into this? Because they've based, they're one of those clubs that we were talking about earlier that it feels like they don't want an academy because that's just the way that they, they're, they're acting as far as, um, promoting kids and, and playing them and giving them chances. I know they'll, you know, throw them a bone every now and then bring them up to the first team, but it always feels like this sort of, um, going through the motions thing of like, we have to do this because MLS has told us we have to have an academy. So it doesn't make much sense because otherwise they seem to be a well-run club. I mean, obviously they're, they're usually in the mix for titles every year and seem to make, you know, sound decisions as far as scouting for their first team. And so I don't know why they can't seem to figure out their academy, but it's, a you know, for a club that's as well followed as the Timbers, it just seems strange to me that in nearly a decade, they just have not figured it out. We've talked academies doing good things and some academies not doing some good things or just not doing much of anything. We started big picture though, Will, and I want to end big picture. My final question for you is, what needs to happen next? How does the United States continue to improve their talent development process? Well, I mean, the question, it kind of goes back to what we've been talking about. I mean, it really is MLS next um, and pouring resources into that. Um, and I think, you know, in a lot of ways, development is it sort of follows the same principles as, you know, planting agriculture. I mean, you've got to put in a lot of sunk cost up front and plant the seeds before you're going to get the harvest. And you may be broke for a little while. Like you may be hungry uh, while the you're waiting for these seeds to pop up. Uh, but it takes a lot of upfront investment with the hope and promise of something coming down the road. Um, and that's something that U S soccer kind of felt like they were trying to hedge their bets a little bit and not trying to put, not trying to go all in on development and spending enough to, you know, make the league viable and you know provide just enough resources that they could do their jobs but not enough to really um get to the next level and so i think that's what i would love to see mls next become is something that really lavishes on its kids and gives them an opportunity to feel like uh you know and one of the most ridiculous things is that u.s soccer is this world-class da hashtag and it, it just became a mockery but one thing I would like to see MLS do is be world-class in the resources and effort it gives its kids. Because if you make kids feel like, um, you know, this is a professionally run sort of organization and make them feel like, wow, like I'm really having an opportunity to be great here. You know, it's amazing what they'll do. I mean, um, and so my hope is just that MLS does everything in its, in its power to make MLS next um, really what the, the DA was not. And that is, you know, something that can develop, you know, not just MLS players, but national team players that really change the game for the U.S. Will, you've been incredibly generous with your time and you've brought incredible insight. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking youth development stuff with me. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me. Listeners, thank you for listening. And the Total Soccer Show will be back again tomorrow.